John chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. On the third day there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding twenty or thirty gallons. Jesus said to the servants, Fill the waters, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. This is the word of the Lord. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we thank you for the gospel of your Son, Jesus Christ, and for the grace that you have shown us through him. We pray that you would bless the reading and preaching of your word unto our edification and growth and grace, that you would uh, that you would show us through your word uh, this glory that uh, Jesus manifested in this his first sign. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So far in the Gospel of John, uh, we have learned a number of things about Jesus, or we've seen things taught about who he is. In the beginning of the chapter uh, 1, we learned that Jesus is the Word. Uh, the, the eternal Word was with God and was God. He's the Son of God. He's God become man. He's full of grace and truth. And then as the account goes along from John the Baptist, we hear that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Then we learned last week, we saw in his calling of his first disciples, that Jesus is the Messiah, uh, the anointed one, the promised Savior, prophet, priest, and king, the mediator between heaven and earth. And now, in this text, Jesus does his first sign, uh, a miracle that manifested his glory and encouraged faith. Uh, It was met with faith in his disciples. Those are important themes in the gospel of John, because in the Gospel of John, he is, being, he is writing these signs uh, so that you might believe that Jesus is uh, the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing, you might have life in his name. And so we see that um, begin here in his first sign, his first miracle that's recounted here in the Gospel of John. The setting is, is set out in verses 1 through 2. It is the third day, or in other words, two days later, after the last event that was recounted. He had been along the Jordan where John was baptizing, and then he had gone back to Galilee where he had grown up, 
and where his disciples were from as well. Um, some of them were uh, closer to the Sea of Galilee, but Nathaniel, one of those who were called, was from the town of Cana. We actually learn that later in the Gospel of John. But this was his hometown, and it was not far from Nazareth, where Jesus grew up, a little bit to the north. Uh, maybe four miles, maybe nine miles. There's debate about where exactly it was, but not too far away. And that explains, perhaps, why the mother of Jesus was there. Um, interestingly, in this gospel, she's never named, but we know what her name is, of course, from the other gospels. That's Mary. Uh, Mary, the mother of Jesus. She shows up in the gospel of John here, and then at the cross, where Jesus sees his mother, and the disciple whom he loved says, Woman, hold your son. Turning to the disciple, behold your mother. We'll get to that, of course, later. But earlier, this is where she shows up in the account at the wedding at Cana. And not only she was there, but Jesus was invited and his disciples were invited. Now, his mother might have had some responsibility there. She seems to direct the servants with some degree of authority. Uh, perhaps this was a relative of theirs, someone that they knew well. But Jesus was there with his disciples. The ones that have been named so far are Andrew, Peter, Philip, Nathaniel, and one other unnamed disciple that came from John the Baptist. You know, there were two that had come uh, after John had pointed him out. So Jesus attended the wedding, and he did his first miracle there. Uh, and it was a miracle that added to the feast. You know, it was... Uh, approving of of the feast. It was not drawing people away from it. And so this event is usually brought up in wedding ceremonies where they talk about, you know, how Jesus uh, not only uh, did his first miracle at a wedding, but attended it to begin with. Uh, That's that marriage is a good ordinance of God appointed by Christ, appointed by, by God at the beginning at creation, and that its celebration is good as well. Uh, Jesus was not ascetic. Uh, thinking that we should abandon the world and all earthly things and go off and live in the desert. Uh, He was at home at a wedding celebration, um, just the next town over from his hometown. It's also a fitting place for his first sign, uh, because the kingdom of heaven that he had come to inaugurate and proclaim is often compared to this very thing, a wedding feast, uh, that the kingdom is like a wedding feast. A, a holy party uh, at which a marriage is celebrated. Uh, that's, you think of the parables of the virgins who are waiting to greet the bridegroom, and the goal is to get into the feast with him before the doors are shut. Well, here Jesus is literally at a wedding feast, and that is the setting of this sign. But a crisis begins in verse 3. There's no wine. The wine ran out. This feast could, could last for a while, and apparently they had some wine, but the ra- wine ran out, and so the mother of Jesus says to him, they have no wine. Oh no, what are they going to do? This could be embarrassing. The bridegroom doesn't have enough as a host. He's, he's not going to have enough wine for his guests, and so she brings this up to him. They have no wine. Now Jesus kind of pushes back in his response. uh, Perhaps he does this to indicate that now his public ministry as the Messiah had begun, and uh, he was not merely 
her son, that he had a mission given to him by his heavenly father. Uh, This would take precedent. He says, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, calling her woman uh, was not as rude in Greek as it sounds in English, or probably Aramaic originally. Um, The term could also be translated something like ma'am. It's respectful, but it's also a little distant. He didn't call her mother. Um, And again, so this is uh, respectful, but also at some distance, uh, that he was more than simply her son. But notice that Mary doesn't take offense. She goes along right with it. She tells the servants, do whatever he tells you. Whatever he tells you, do. She did not presume to tell Jesus what to do. She didn't say, Jesus, you need to tell the guests to be happy with what they have, or go and and make some wine somewhere. She doesn't tell him. She just presents him with the problem and then tells the servants, do what he tells you. This is a note that if you want to honor Mary, the, the mother of Jesus, you should do what she said. Do whatever Jesus tells you. Uh, this is what she would have you to do. It's interesting, Mary, who did she live with after Jesus died and rose from the dead? Mary lived with John, the one who wrote this gospel. It's interesting that, not that she's more prominent in this gospel than the other gospels. Perhaps that's because she was pointing to Jesus Christ, that he ought to be the one whom we ought to give attention to. So we ought to respect Mary, but we should listen to what she says. Do whatever Jesus tells you. When you are in a crisis, go to Jesus. Entrust yourself to him, submitting your will to his direction. Whatever he tells you, do. Well, we come then to the sign. What does Jesus do? Uh, There were six stone water jars. But these are not jars, you know, like a mason jar. These are very large jars, maybe more like, you know, this. I'm not sure, I didn't measure how much is 20 to 30 gallons look like, but these are large stone jars, and there's six of them. 20 to 30 gallons each. That's like at least 120 gallons altogether. Now, they weren't designed for wine. They were designed for water. Not just water, but water for purification rites. Now, the other Gospels tell us about how a lot of the Jews had extra purification ceremonies that they did, that the law didn't necessarily require, but uh, they did to try to emphasize how they were supposed to be clean and set apart, that whenever they'd walk into the house after you know contact with the world, that they would ceremonially wash their hands and do that before they eat and uh, at other times and sprinkle uh, other objects to cleanse them. And so there were these stone jars that were for that purpose. But they were empty at the moment. And then Jesus tells the servants, fill up these jars with water. And they fill them up to the brim. They completely fill them. Probably getting the water from the well and filling up the jars. That probably took a minute. So it probably took some time. And then he tells them to draw some water out and give it to the master of the feast. And so they do. Now who knew where the water came from? Not the master of the feast, not the bridegroom, but the servants were in on it. And Jesus, of course, knew, and the disciples knew, and the mother of Jesus probably knew as well. But the master of the feast 
He tastes the water now become wine, and it was really good. And he was surprised that the bridegroom had been holding back on the good stuff. Now, there's several places in the Gospel of John where we have this kind of irony, uh, this, the way things are stated. You know, like when the woman at the well talks about the Christ and not realizing that he's standing right in front of her. Uh, other comments like that. There's an example here where he's, wow, this is such good wine. Usually people serve the good wine first, you know, when their taste buds are more sensitive and it hasn't been dulled by, you know, already drinking some. But you've saved the best for last. And is surprised, calling the bridegroom over to him. Of course, the bridegroom is probably clueless as well. I'm just glad that there was wine. Someone found, <laughs> maybe he was filled in later. But usually, the best was served first. But now the best had come last. And then verse 11, we come to the key verse. You know, what does this all mean? What was the significance of this? This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Of course, we note there's another verse after that. They go down to Capernaum. He, his mother, his brothers, his disciples, and they'll stay there for a few days. But go back to verse 11. This was the first of his signs. Notice that's an interesting word to use for miracle. It's not just a miracle, but it's a sign. It signifies something. And it was the first and he manifested his glory. Remember, we beheld his glory, glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. They begin to see it. And what's their response? His disciples believed in him. They had faith in him. I got to the end of the text, but that's not the end of the sermon. Think about, then, what does this mean? It was a sign. It was symbolic. It meant something. Notice, what was the purpose of those stone water jars? I don't think it's without purpose that it notes that these were for the Jewish rites of purification. The old system was ready to be replaced. There were kind of two aspects to this old system. There was the ceremonial law that was in the Old Testament, and then there was also the traditions of man that had been added to that, kind of along the same lines, but um, sometimes even replacing what God had actually said to do but the traditions of man that had uh, been gathered up as well. And these things focused on the externals, washing, rituals. The ceremonial law was good. It was supposed to teach them more than just externals, to teach them about the purity of heart and how God washes us clean. But it was also limited and temporary. It was growing old. Uh, Hebrews 9 says, According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. They were imposed for a time. Uh, regulations for the body, not really dealing with the core issue, but to teach the people for a time. Now, the traditions of men were not very good, and usually they pointed people away from the substance and started to direct them more and more to the mere externals, the stuff on the outside. Now, apart from Christ, these rituals were empty, dry, beginning to run out. The wine was gone. So with the earth in general, would not uh, satisfy, would run out, would prove insufficient the old system is ready to be replaced. And that sets the stage then for what Jesus does. 
Second point here, not only was the old system ready to be replaced, but the wine symbolized the blessing and joy of God's grace. Like I said, it was both a miracle and a sign. It was supernatural, not the way things normally work. You don't just put water in a jar and then out comes, you know, really good wine or wine at all. It was a miracle. But it was also a sign. It showed his person, that he was God and the anointed Messiah. But it also showed his work. What does he do? He brings blessing. He brings joy. It demonstrated his power and legitimacy, that he was approved by God, like a prophet of old and more than a prophet, the son himself. But it was also instructive. Jesus came to give life and to give it freely, abundantly. With him is life, a divine blessing, and joy. And the ironic comment of that master of the feast proved true. The best had come last. Uh, there was something better now in the new covenant where these blessings would be poured out more freely and abundantly. And Jesus uh, came then. And from Jesus we have received grace upon grace. Note also, this might be too subtle, but what did, they come, what did the wine come from again? Stone jars? We really have to be told they were stone jars. Was there someone else that brought something good to drink out of stone? Maybe there's a hint that Jesus is like Moses, but instead of drawing water from the rock, he's drawing wine. Perhaps that's too creative. But the chapter 1 had just compared him to Moses. From Moses came the law, and from Jesus we have received grace on grace. Now, I'm not making that up, the whole idea of wine symbolizing these things. In turn to Isaiah chapter 25. Isaiah chapter 25 speaks of God's work of redemption and symbolizes it with good wine. Chapter 25, verse 6 and following, he says, On this mountain the Lord of hosts will make for all peoples a feast of rich food, a feast of well-aged wine, of rich food, full of marrow, of aged wine, well-refined. And he will swallow up on this mountain the covering that is cast over all the peoples, the veil that is spread over all nations. He will swallow up death forever, and the Lord God will wipe away tears from all faces, and the reproach of his people he will take away from all the earth, for the Lord has spoken. God will save his people. He will save, bring salvation to all peoples, and eventually he'll do away with death. He'll wipe away the tears from your eyes. Of course, this is something manifested in perfection of the kingdom, the end of time, the new age to come, when he will do away with death, and we will have joy. And that joy is symbolized by a feast of rich food and good wine. The Bible connects wine with joy, um, that it's given as a good gift that, of course, man abuses, excess. But apart from that, it is a symbol of God's generosity. Do you need wine? No. You can get by with water. But God gives us lots of things we don't need. And Psalm 104 says, saying, speaking to God, You cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he may bring forth food from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man. Wine is for joy. And so the Bible also uses wine as a metaphor for the joy that God gives 
by his grace. In Zechariah 10, God says, I will strengthen the house of Judah, and I will save the house of Joseph. Then Ephraim shall become like a mighty warrior, and their hearts shall be glad as with wine. Their children shall see it and be glad. Their hearts shall rejoice in the Lord. Or the one that we read earlier today in Psalm 4. You have put more joy in my heart than they have when their grain and wine abound. And so, God gives his people grace, and this is reason for joy. You know, when when people are upset at you, that's usually not a cause for joy, right? That's usually when you uh, feel sad or nervous or afraid. But when God is favorable towards you, when God is promised blessing for you, that is a cause for joy, for rejoicing, for security, for peace, for relief. And God puts joy in our hearts, and that joy is our strength. Even Jesus, who's described as a man of sorrows, because our sorrows were laid upon him, he experienced pain for us, yet what is it that brought him through that suffering? He looked to the joy that was set before him, the joy of that deliverance, the, the fruit of his work that he would see. The joy is that also motivates us, the joy that comes from the Lord. And so Jesus came to taste the bitter and sour wine that's offered on the cross so that we might, as it were, receive the good wine that has come at last, symbol of the joy that we have in Christ. He has made things well and good. Now, the last point here is that the disciples are examples for us. The sign is written so that you too might believe in Jesus. They began to behold his glory, the glory of his grace. You know, as the glory passed by Moses on the mountain, and what was it that he heard? He heard that God is a God of steadfast love and faithfulness and mercy and grace. It was his character, his, his, the manifestation of his his power and his love and his holiness. Well, so they begin to see Jesus and get to know him, and his glory begins to be revealed as they see this power and this goodness, this generosity from him. And so they respond with faith. And so this is written to that you too might hear of his glory, why he came, and believe in him also. Those who believe in his name are made children of God, Receive eternal life. Think of it. Jesus is worthy to be believed on because, first of all, he's powerful, and he shows that in this miracle. He is the one by whom all things were made. That's in chapter 1. He's the one that made wine to begin with, you know, designed the grape, you know, to make juice, and so that it gets broken down and, and turns into wine, and it's a miraculous not miraculous. It's a natural process, but it's an amazing process, the way it works. And Jesus is the one by whom those things were made. But now as he come on earth in flesh and blood as man, he exercised the same creative power. But it was the creator come to save you and me. Not only is he powerful, he is life-giving, the source of peace and of joy. With him there is no wrath. Once one receives him by faith, but rather there is grace and love and care, a merciful high priest who is there to relieve us. 
So, in conclusion, Jesus befits that he is at a wedding feast. He is the bridegroom, after all. When the, when the bridegroom is with us, how could we fast? Uh, he is the, the husband of the church. He is the cause for joy. He is the glorious Savior. Let us believe. Let us rejoice. Let us take joy in the life that he gives us. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your favor, your unmerited favor, that you have shown us in Jesus Christ, not only forgiving our sins, but receiving us as your children, giving us the hope of eternal life, and even your help and aid in this life. We pray that you would indeed increase our joy through a meditation upon your power and love, that we might, in the joy that you give, have strength, strength to endure, strength to glorify you in all our deeds. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.